Welcome to Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. In this podcast, I chat to athletes, coaches, and industry professionals about their sporting journey and the lessons they've learned along the way. Guests range from Olympians to the everyday lover of sport, but the message stays the same. There is so much more to sport than what meets the eye. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify so you don't miss the release of each new episode. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. I'd love to hear from you. Hello and welcome back to Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. I'm coming to you today during Melbourne's sixth lockdown with an episode that was recorded two weeks ago during lockdown number five. I don't really have the emotional energy to comment on the politics of the lockdowns. There are so many people that are being affected, but I hope to think that the sporting and fitness community will be able to use the skills they've learnt through sport and physical activity to get them through these tough times. Reach out to your friends and loved ones. Move your body somehow. Even if it's just for 10 minutes, your mental health will thank you. This week's guest has an amazing tip of taking recovery seriously and to prioritise sleep. Speaking of this week's guest, I should probably introduce him. Jack Gerard, an Australian swimmer who has not only represented his country in two world championships, but did so while studying medicine. And he can now call himself a doctor. Jack is incredibly humble and proves to everyone out there that you can do amazing things both in and out of the sporting arena. In this episode, Jack takes us through his early years in the sport and what got him hooked on swimming, as well as the wonderful work he did as club captain for his swimming club. It was actually a Swimming Victoria Developing Young Leaders Day where Jack and I met back in 2014, and it's been amazing to watch his achievements both in and out of the pool since. Jack recently competed at the Olympic trials, which you can watch on Amazon Prime. You can find his 100 metre freestyle swim in day four of finals. That's enough from me. Let's hear from Jack. So Jack, can you tell us a little bit about your sport? You're a fellow swimmer and how you got into it. Yeah, sure. So as you said, I'm a swimmer. I've been swimming competitively for the last 17 years. I first learned to swim like most Australians do from a very young age first in the bathtub and then it, uh, learned to swim lessons um, and sort of junior squad level and going from there. And I suppose from the competitive side of things, I grew up in far North Queensland and the weather is much, much um, more warm and lovely there than it is in Victoria at the moment, unfortunately. And so swimming was a um, natural sport, I suppose, for the community there and quite popular and a really good social sport as well. So. I started just before I was 10 uh, and lots of friends at my local school were getting involved and um, just starting in more junior development squads. And so that's how I first found swimming and the squad that I uh, learned to swim with at a competitive level. Oh, that's cool. And you said it was like a real social sport. Was there a specific moment that you were like, yes, this is for me. This is what I want to do. I think so. Uh, It would probably be my first state championship medal. I was 11 years old uh, and it was the Queensland state championships and far north Queensland there's definitely less people there than there would be in somewhere like Brisbane or one of the major metropolitan cities and so the competition is probably more sparse but there's still a great amount of talent coming from that area and so in my age group in particular there was probably maybe three or four of us who were um, regularly competing against one another 
but this state relay provided the opportunity for us to all swim together for the region against other different um, regional relay teams. And I, I suppose reflecting on it now, it just demonstrated how competitive and how beneficial it was all of us working off against each other because we were able to come away with the gold medal, which was an amazing experience. And I, I hadn't really worked alongside them in a relay like that before. Uh, so learning to enjoy working with and also against your competitors and uh, enjoying the moment was yeah pretty special for me at the time. And I think also coming from a smaller rural area in Queensland, flying down to Brisbane with the bigger, bigger stadium, bigger crowd, more pressure added um, to the environment uh, was also a really cool experience. And I, I love that. Um, and from there, I haven't really looked back. Oh, that's amazing. I like that it was when you were young and it was actually that team relay that got you involved. You're like, yes, like this is great. Like, yes, we were competitive against each other, but you had to put that aside and come together and be competitive against, you know, the other regions. That's so cool. Yeah. You started off in Queensland. How did you end up in Melbourne? <laughs> um, I did. So I spent the first 15 years of my life up in Queensland uh, and really loved it. Um, Kansas is a beautiful part of the world, in my opinion, mm-hmm. bordering on paradise. Um, but depends who you ask. <laughs> and ultimately, what led me to move down to Victoria was just a change in circumstances and an opportunity that presented itself. So uh Unfortunately, my coach in Cairns um, at the time had decided to take a step back and retire from the sport. And I I sort of considered other options uh, up in Cairns, but realised that it might be a good opportunity for me to try and challenge myself somewhere else. And so then with the support of both my parents, started looking at, I suppose, all the major cities along the eastern seaboard uh, and decided to settle on Melbourne for a couple of reasons. I was very fortunate to receive a scholarship to Melbourne Grammar and because my family wouldn't be coming with me it was important to also find somewhere where I felt like I had my own space in a boarding school where I'd be well supported Uh, and um, I think Melbourne Grammar ticked ticked those boxes. I was offered a, a single room, everybody was very kind and supportive when I came down to visit and it provided the opportunity for me to also challenge myself academically, which has been something that I've always been passionate about alongside my swimming. And so finding the school that was the perfect fit from that perspective took a couple of goes and I ended up settling and coming down to Melbourne. Oh my gosh, that, there's so much I want to unpack there, but I'm going to go back yeah. to the start with the coach retiring. Like, how did you feel? I've had, I had one of my first coaches leave the club and move into state and go somewhere else. And that was a bit of a rocky transition for me because, you know, swimming was my whole life at that stage. How did you feel with that? Like, was that really hard for you? I suppose all things considered one of the bigger things that I'd faced for my age. Um, My mother had also been previously unwell just before my coach retired, but I think being faced with my coach retiring and then possibly having to move away from home uh, was something very foreign. I lived at home. I've been very lucky to live at home, pretty much the same house for my entire childhood. So that reality dawning on me when my coach said that he was taking a step back uh, was, I I suppose, initially quite uncomfortable. And then it was just a matter of taking a step back, looking at the situation, trying to figure out what I really wanted um, and what my options were. And as I said, I, I was really enthusiastic to try and make the best of an unfortunate situation and take up a new challenge somewhere else. 
Wow. And how old were you when that happened? Because moving out of home is a big thing. So how old were you? Yeah. So my coach retired when I was just before my 15th birthday. And then I moved down to Melbourne by myself just after I turned 15. Oh, wow. That's, that's young. Like, good on you. That's amazing. Thank you. It was, it was definitely a different experience. I think even just moving to the other side of the country completely from Cairns to Melbourne, uh, it's different. It's, it's the same country, but there's many differences between Victorians and Queenslanders, <laughs> especially Northern Queenslanders and uh, Melburnians. And so I took a little bit of adjustment when I first came down, uh, getting used to how, how people did things down here. People probably weren't a fan of my Queensland accent initially, and I've probably slowly lost that since being down here now for over a decade. But um, yeah, still, still a great opportunity nonetheless. You had that social environment back at Cairns. How did you find like moving down to Melbourne and starting that again, starting that fresh from, from what you had? Yeah. Again, it was a challenge for sure. I think just before I left Cairns, uh, as people grow older, they have different interests and their circumstances might change. And so all of those original people that have been with me for that first relay when I was 11 weren't still around at the time. A couple had taken a step back from the sport or were doing it for more of an um, less competitive, more enjoyment perspective. And so by the time I did actually move, uh, there was certainly less competition in the area, I would say. So I think the city, uh, as I said before, did present an opportunity to really challenge myself more. Moving down here, I went straight into a much bigger squad than I was used to back up in Cairns. And so I think almost three times the size. Uh, so theoretically three times the number of friends and everybody was lovely. I felt very, very welcome uh, and immediately made some really great lifelong friends. I've been training with Mac Horton for 11 years now. So yeah, it's, it's been a great experience to be in that squad for such a long time. I think it's something really special and I'm, I'm really not sure about other sports, but with swimming, especially you spend so many hours a week with these people. Like I wouldn't even call them my friends. Like they're an extension of my family. And I think it's really special that you can get such a deep bond from a group of people and you know you might all go to different schools you might be different ages like there might be a six-year age span between your squad but the fact that you can be there for each other at the end of the day in the best moments and the worst at you know five o'clock when you're doing a lactate set and you're just throwing up lactic acid I think that's really really special it is it is uh and as you said there's older people in the squad and there's also younger so there's people looking up to you or trying to strive to be more like you or chase you down and um, swim faster than you can and there's also people that I had the chance to look up to or learn things from being slightly older than I was and so yeah I guess coming down to a bigger program definitely allowed that towards the end the program that I was previously coming from in Cairns had become a slightly smaller and so that was yeah another another fun part of moving. <laughs> and so that, they were the early years in swimming. Was there any like significant milestones in, in the swimming journey, like wins, losses, injuries that you would like to tell us about? I think uh, probably one of my biggest losses came after what was a, a huge win for me at the time. I got my first national age uh, medal at the national short course. It was state teams at the time 
in 2010. And then unfortunately, directly after that, uh, was diagnosed with a stress fracture in my lower back. And so had to take complete time out of the water and complete rest. That was definitely tricky going from such a high to such a low. And then a lot of months of rehab and slowly getting back into the water whilst also trying to fit in after recently moving to Melbourne. And so that was really quite tricky. And after that, I think in hindsight now, I, I definitely could have done things differently from a recovery and management perspective. But at the time I was trying my best and I um, unfortunately had a lot of injuries. And so whilst there were definitely some highs after that in the coming years, also riddled with various shoulder injuries and whatnot, made it quite a challenging couple of years really for me and swimming and really uh, tested my love for the sport. However, mm -hmm. yeah, fortunately was able to move past that. And I think probably two of the biggest highlights for me would be making the world championship teams in 2016 and 2018. In 2016, I was really fortunate to come away with a bronze medal as part of the one of the freestyle relays there. And that was an amazing experience also getting to travel over to the US and Canada. However, I think there's probably a particular moment from the 2018 world championships that I will yeah, treasure and really enjoyed as probably one of my most memorable and enjoyable times competing on an international stage. So it was at the, as I said, the 2018 uh, World Championships, which are in China, uh, just west of Shanghai. Uh, and the stadium itself was a previously existing sporting stadium shaped in a dome, completely circular with the pool down on the floor in the middle. It had a roof and could seat just over uh, 11,000 people, I think. And so on a particular evening, it was the four by 200 freestyle final. And all the usual suspects were there, the US, Russia, China, and obviously us. And the crowd was completely electric because Sung Yang, the home favorite, was there swimming for China. And so I was really fortunate to have the opportunity to stand up on the blocks whilst the crowd was cheering in the middle of that relay. And I remember it being so loud uh, that my ears were just completely ringing. And I, I don't mind listening to loud music before I go up and race, but um, that was something else. And uh, I just, I was on the block getting ready to take over and dive in for my race. And I just had goosebumps because it was such a, a cool experience to be representing Australia. And I love a good atmosphere. And this was definitely um, a roaring crowd and feeling the pressure just before I dived in. It was definitely a memorable moment. Yeah, that would be crazy. And it's weird, you know, it being a relay, it's a little bit different to individual events. And I guess, you know, the Olympics is on right now and you'll see that when you get on the blocks, everyone kind of goes really silent. Well, not that no one's going to see because it's not going to be any crowds, but in regular swimming events, the crowd goes silent when you get on the block. So that would have been really like exhilarating and a little bit like funny. And yeah, no wonder you had goosebumps because, you know, it was really loud and you're like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. You're right. I suppose I hadn't thought of it from that perspective, but most other individual races, whilst you have the crowd sort of getting behind you as you're walking out before mm -hmm. your race and the preparation, once it's once you're on the blocks and things are getting ready to go is a almost eerie silence, which again is a um, an enjoyable thing in itself, I think, because all of the noise just drops down to zero and everybody's just there focused on that race. However, you're right. I think unless you're in a relay, you don't get to experience that level of noise right before you're about to dive in. And so perhaps that was one of the factors that made it such a fun, special memory. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And we've spoken about a little bit about this before, but you have also not only been, I guess, racing professionally or internationally at, you know, 
got a Dolphins number, Australian swim team number. So you've represented our country, but you've also completed a medical degree. So you are actually a doctor. So we should be calling you Dr. Jack. <laughs> but how did you go kind of balancing, you know, your medical studies, which in no way is easy, but also such a high time committing sport? I think uh, with difficulty to summarise it all up. <laughs> And yeah, I'm very fortunate to have been able to do both. Uh, it was something, again, as it, I guess it comes back to talking about the opportunity for me to be able to come down here and study at a school on a scholarship whilst also trying to better myself in swimming. And yeah, be given the opportunity to study at university in medical school was a real privilege, uh, something that I'm still grateful for and probably always will be. I think balancing the two they're both really large time commitments mm -hmm. and a medical degree is not like other university degrees where you're able to drop down subject load or work part-time or something like that. Unfortunately, because the clinical theory is integrated with all of the other systems and the physiology uh, and the clinical skills that you're learning at the time, it's very difficult to sort of only learn half of that and come back at another time and learn the other half. And so I suppose that the crux of how I managed the two was uh, when I was doing my medical studies, managing that as well as swimming as best I could. And then when I knew that I was going to have a big year of traveling overseas or uh, I was a key meet that I was really working towards, I would actually take either half a year or in this case at Monash where I went to medical school, you had to take a full year off. And so that allowed me an opportunity to purely focus on my swimming. And I took a couple of years off just to focus on my swimming. Uh, First, directly after school, with unfortunate success, uh, had a shoulder injury for most of the year. But then later on in 2016, where I made the 100 freestyle final at the Olympic trials and unfortunately just missed out and then went on to make the world championships team later that year. I think I, think I was away for around seven out of the 12 months of that wow. year, um, traveling and competing and whatnot. It was a non-option really. I had to I had to take a break from my studies if I wanted to do that. And I'm definitely glad I did for all of the things that I learned and took away from it. But yeah, it's just about planning out what you want to do in each year. Uh, well, that's what it was about for me. And then figuring out the best way to do that. And for a medical degree, it's often involves if you are doing a sport that does have a large time commitment, taking time away from the degree as well as managing the two. I was saying to my partner, I think that was last night, and I was saying, I'm really excited to interview you because, you know, you have represented your country, but your career has not just been your sport. You've been actively working towards something and it's not been, not that I'm going to bag my own degree here, but it's not been a degree in sport or something that's a low demand that you can drop down to part-time. It's been a degree in medicine. Like it's one of the most well-respected and it deserves to be, but the most well-respected degrees out there. And yeah, it's just amazing that you've come out the other end of those tough years and you, you are a doctor, but also you have been a professional athlete. And that's, that's something that's really special. And I think it's very inspirational that you don't have to do one or the other. You can try and do both and manage both, even though it's a bit tricky, but you, you can try. For sure. Uh, thank you. And you're exactly right. I think one of the one of the big things I've taken away from it is that I think I think you can set out to have two or, or multiple big goals in a set amount of time, but you just need to be realistic and understand that they might not be able to occur concurrently at the exact same time. But 
for me, that was trying to get through my medical studies and also make the Australian swim team. And there was definitely ups and downs. Um, and as I said, taking years off and that kind of thing to get there. But it really, um, yeah, it's one of the things that I've taken away for sure, is that I think you can apply yourself to more than one goal in different areas. It just is going to take a bit of time and negotiation and figuring out when to when to peak and do your best at one or the other. Yeah, and I think with swimming, it's such a such a popular sport, and it's very um, I'm going to call it cutthroat in the selection process because I've really noticed, especially in the last twelve months, how other sports you know make the team for something like the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games, and with swimming you have to swim a certain qualifying time in the final and you have to place either top two or three depending on whatever event it is sometimes com games three go so like the fact that you were in one of those cutthroat sports did that kind of ever play in your mind and you're like oh like why is this so difficult It does. It does. I don't go around with a, a badge of honor on my shoulder or anything like that. But um, I think you're right. There is there is an element of high pressure and high stakes, mm-hmm. the way that swimming selection works for all Australian teams. And I think ultimately, after many years, swimmers are in Australia faced with the option of either embracing that or struggling to come to terms with it and then um, maybe not, not being able to handle the pressure as well. And so I, I guess with no other option really I um I've learned to as best I can try and thrive on that environment knowing that there's only one event there's only one opportunity and everybody else is there trying to do the same thing so I think if you're able to harness that pressure and use it to your advantage and try and enjoy the environment as much as possible it can be yeah a pretty special thing so as you say for any event when there's only one opportunity in time to make Mm. it it's it is nerve-wracking and higher pressure than other sports. But at the same time, I think swimming is a sport that's lucky to have uh, clear qualifying times. And if you do swim faster than those A qualifying times, you automatically book your book your seat and you make that team. And so I, I know that there's other sports where things are perhaps more political or mm-hmm. less clear-cut. And so swimming is still very lucky in that way. And I don't know for other sports that have multiple selection opportunities. I think whilst it's less pressure at the time, uh, there's more pressure to prove that you're on form for the entire season, I think, or when, when is the best time to peak. So I'm sure that they face their own challenges that I haven't been able to appreciate as well. Yeah, that is true. I guess you're a 100, 200 swimmer. So you have, you know, under a minute to a couple minutes of, performance that you have to put out but imagine having to do that throughout a a three to six month selection period that would be quite difficult and you'd be like oh no I had one bad race does this mean I'm not going to be on the team exactly right and uh as well as that I think if you peaked at the very beginning and got your qualifying time and you were the fastest in the field you also put a target on the back of your head to say everybody else this is a time to beat and so uh, I imagine a lot of people would leave things to later in the season, but it's how late do you want to leave it without giving yourself another chance if things don't go well or yeah, it would be tricky. So I, I'm sort of, I'm happy with how things are in swimming probably yeah, to be honest. Yeah. It'd probably be a nightmare for the coaches. I'd feel for the coaches trying to like trying to plan that out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, well, I guess we've touched on a few, but is there any benefits of sport that has provided you as an individual that's transferred over to other avenues of your life 
definitely. Yeah, as I've, I think I've said already, I'm very grateful for what I've learned in swimming and the lessons it's taught me. It's probably uh, three big things really that I could say I've taken away from it, which would be uh, discipline and the discipline that I've needed to develop, resilience, and then also uh, for me, balancing other things outside of swimming would also be time management. I think the number of hours that's required to become a swimmer at any level is enormous. Uh, you're sort of booking at least 20 hours a week in of training if you want to compete as a swimmer. And then depending on how long you want to give yourself um, and how, how far you want to go, it, it can be many, many years. And whilst uh, most people love their squad and have a great squad environment, it's still a lot of time. The discipline involved in waking up every single day, knowing that if you don't, the impact that will have on your performance. And so learning to train yourself to just get up, deliver and perform at your very best every day at training is something which is difficult to have from the outset and that you have to develop and learn. So I think I have done that across the many years I've been involved in swimming. The resilience is definitely possibly the biggest thing I've taken away personally. In any sport, you have highs and lows, uh, whether it's injuries or losses or disappointment after not qualifying for things. And you also have highs where you've achieved the goal or you've been able to come away with a um, new personal best or a result or a medal or make a team, whatever it might be. And so learning to deal with those extreme lows when other people are having their extreme highs and also managing your own emotions when you've had a really great result and other people perhaps might have not done so well is a great skill. And coming back from the lows, it's hard, especially if you have multiple in a row, but that's what you have to do. So um, being able to learn that is definitely a valuable skill. And then, as I said, time management for me, learning how to balance both medical studies and swimming side by side in, in the full tilt of my medical degree, I was probably doing 35 hours or more of placement a week and then trying to do over 20 hours of swimming alongside driving uh, leaves little time for sleep or anything else outside of that. And so figuring out every single way possible to manage my time as best I can um, was also a skill that I was fortunate to have a fair bit of practice at. Yeah. Oh, I, I really like those. And I guess, I don't know if it's sport specific, but they're probably the three that I kind of learnt from swimming as well. And they do, I guess, transfer over to your daily life and you use all three of them being a doctor you'd they'd be quite uh important I guess like yeah you're definitely not in an easy industry in terms of you you need resilience you might have one really hard day at work but it doesn't matter the next patient you see you need to show up for so yeah that's very 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 important especially in the, the year that we've all just had exactly right exactly right and I think both outside of sport but also in sport people's resilience has been really tested this last year it's been a challenging time for everyone uh really challenging and i guess it's great that we've still been able to come out and have the tokyo olympics on the other side of such chaos for so long mm -hmm. uh and i think everybody's been affected differently i i would say that it's fair to say victorian swimmers have been locked out more than any other state and so it's probably been a bit of a tough trot for them and like any other sport based in victoria unfortunately there's just been a lot of lockdowns here and so you're right, absolutely. Building resilience through that alone has been a big thing for many people, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. And I know, not that I actively swim nor compete at the moment anymore, but 
the fact that I was able to kind of draw back on those tools that I had learned in those early years, I kind of, that and a little bit of um, wine got me through last year yeah. and that long <laughs> lockdown. I just look back and go, okay, well, how would have I dealt with that if I didn't have those skills that I had learned through those years, through those injuries, through those disappointments, through all those hard moments where you, you can't see your friends because you're training or you've got a competition on it's not at all the same, but I kind of was able to build on that platform that I had already built when I was 15, 16, 17 and, and work on it. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're, you've hit the nail on the head. Um, I think a lot of people would be able to recall on other skills they've learned, in particular those people who've previously competed in swimming in the past, all those skills would have, I'm sure, served them well in lockdown. Is there yeah. a lesson that you've learned along the way that you want to share either to yourself, you know, that 15 year old that was moving down to Melbourne or someone up and coming? Definitely lots of things that I've learned during my time in swimming and also balancing out things outside of swimming alongside my sport. I think we already touched on the fact that balancing, I think you can set yourself multiple goals, both in sport and outside of sport and achieve those and just recognizing that they might not both occur at the exact same time and it might take time and patience and resilience and commitment like we've already discussed. But I think it is possible. And in a sport like swimming where so many people do struggle to navigate that as they go through the more senior years of high school and academics or other things outside of their sport, call them to have varying, alter their commitments in life. I think I've been fortunate to try and understand that it is possible with the right support network and with the right skills that just takes patience, time and understanding that it might not happen. But I think the other two big ones would be probably I've learned a lot about recovery and to appreciate the importance of recovery, in particular sleep mm -hmm. and also self-belief. The many years of injuries that I mentioned earlier, uh, I think one of the biggest factors or causes for that was a complete lack of sleep and focus on my recovery for me. I was at boarding school, waking up at 4.30 in the morning and riding a bike to MSAC here in Melbourne and then training, going back to school, doing school all day, riding back to the pool, doing gym, doing swim, getting home at 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night, eating dinner by myself in the dining hall and then doing study and going to bed and probably only getting around six hours sleep. And because that was most of my high school, I then continued that habit um, into my early years after school and when I started university and it wasn't until I realized the importance and how much of an impact that had on my performance adequately sleeping for seven or eight, or if you're lucky enough, nine hours a night, it, it can make an enormous difference. And so for me, uh, that's probably been one of the key and it sounds simple, but one of the key things for me taking my performance to the next level is despite taking on lots of different things and having enjoying challenging myself in different areas, prioritizing sleep so I can perform or try my best every day has been important. And then self-belief in all sports is crucial. Uh, when you stand up behind the blocks or um, whatever else the analogy would be for another sport, you want to have complete belief that you can do something. It's really challenging if you hop up behind the blocks and think, I, don't, I can't do this. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not good enough. I don't think I can achieve my personal best or improve. And so learning to what you need to do to tell yourself that and to wholeheartedly believe without any doubt in your mind that you can do something and mm -hmm. set your mind to that is an amazing skill. And 
once you understand how to get yourself into that mindset, I think it's also slightly uh, liberating or it's, it's a bit of a freedom in a way because you can focus on enjoying the moment more mm-hmm. when you have confidence in yourself that you can achieve something and there's less of the jittery nerves and fear and all of those negative emotions that surround it. Oh, that's awesome. And I'm going to take that advice, uh, not as medical advice, but you're a doctor and you just said that sleep is really important. So I'm going to take that as uh, permission to nap whenever I want. <laughs> Highly advocate for that. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's, it's really interesting. And it's good that you say that because sleep and it does sound simple, but it impacts so many. And you'd obviously know way more than what I would know in terms of your body and how it functions, but it does impact way more things than, you know, we kind of give it credit for. And I think I know myself, I need eight to nine hours of sleep. Otherwise I'm a nightmare. And (laughs) my family and my partner could probably attest to the the fact that (laughs) they can, they know when I don't get enough sleep because everything goes downhill. So yeah, I really, really like that recovery is such an important part of your performance. And then also believing in yourself, like they're kind of both looking after your physical and mental health rather than pushing to that next level. It's looking after yourself and then your body will push and do what it needs to do to perform. Yeah, exactly right. I think they are uh, objectively speaking, probably quite basic things people Mm. would think, but to master them both is very challenging and something that I, I probably haven't mastered and yeah, so, so crucial, so crucial. So getting those things right from the get-go and then continuously working to improve them and make sure that you are getting your recovery right and that you have full self-belief is uh, invaluable, I think. 100%. And the self-belief, when you were saying that, it just made me think back to the first time I swam a 200 fly. Yeah, that's a classic, I think. And I think anyone who was a swimmer and had to compete in a 200 butterfly, thank you to my coach who made me do that. Um, I actually made the the boys at training because there was no girls that day. I don't know why they must have known that we were doing butterfly set. And they sat at either side of, we had a short course, so a 25 metre pool and they were cheering me on. So each lap, I just took it one lap at a time. And then I knew I went into that race on the weekend and I knew that I could at least make the distance and not drown. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> You've done it before. You can do it again. Yeah. And I think swimming, I'm sure it's like all sports, but swimming is one of those things where you probably do put some of the hardest yards in, in the pool in training, really. Mm-hmm. When it comes to race day, it is more of a automatic motor pattern uh, exercise. Uh, having said that, obviously, the longer the race becomes, the more tactical and the more aerobically, physically challenging it is. But certainly sprinting is very much a motor patterning yeah. and learned habit for racing. But yeah, I think I think most swimmers have the age-old sort of uh, war stories from where their coach had put them through the the various sets that they have. I know that our coach used to have this policy that if you were talking whilst he was, even by accident, you you scored an eight hundred meter butterfly. Oh, um, so that that helped build confidence for the two hundred meter butterfly. <laughs> you had to do eight hundred. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, swimming is definitely like all sports, probably changing away from that kind of behavior, but. Um, uh, it's becoming, yeah. you don't, you don't punish people with, uh, with swimming. <laughs> I think that's the the, exactly. the whole coaching philosophy now is you, 
you uh, reward good behavior and you don't punish with the activity that they're supposed to be doing anyway. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh gosh. So, yeah. I just look back and I'm like, how did I, how did I do that? I certainly can't do it now. <laughs> yep. Me too. Me too. Like those, the younger years, uh, people have different theories, but I think that sort of middle teenage years and even maybe before then it's, it's crucial for building a good base. Mm-hmm. Um, and really setting yourself up in the sport of swimming anyway, but I'm sure it's a case for lots of sports and uh, yeah, lots of, as you said, punishment, but hopefully less of that is happening now. No, but it taught us things. Like we've come out the other end and I'd say we're okay. <laughs> I would say that too. Yep. Agreed. We still remember the instances that we had to do it are slightly traumatic, but we're okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny. It is coming back to what we said about squad squad environment though often when you catch up with old squad mates or people that you went through it with it's a it's a fun thing to laugh and bond over for sure all the memories that you shared and the tough times yeah Yeah, but also the good times like the funny things that happened like yeah exactly yeah Uh, too many to speak about I think (laughs) yeah I think so I think so so have you been involved in a project where sport has been used to develop the community Probably the best example for me would be uh, I was fortunate to be club captain of uh, my local swim club, so Melbourne Vic Centre, for a number of years. And in that role, I tried to be involved as I could and do various different initiatives and start ideas and make sure that the the club and the community was as connected as possible because the club was quite large, um, Mm -hmm. hundreds of of swimmers, and you had a complete uh, varying of age from very junior squad level of six or seven, even learned to swim actually, all the way up to the podium squad where there were people in their mid twenties. And as well as that, like a master's squad that uh, obviously was even um, full full grown adults and elderly people um, competing and enjoying the sports still at that stage. So lots of different people in different walks of life at different stages. And yeah, whether it was organizing award night every year, that was always a fun thing and a, a great occasion where people got together and enjoyed themselves and celebrated as a community. But a particular event that I did was an amazing race for my club. Uh, there was a couple of hundred kids involved and the way we organized it was myself and the other club captain uh, set up teams. So one of the uh, swimmers from the senior performance squad would be coupled in with a few of the age group squad and then also a few from the development squad so you had all different age groups and then you had a sort of team leader or captain I suppose and that was a really fun day where uh, people were running around Albert Park here in Melbourne for probably three or four hours some people <laughs> less some people got quite lost um, but these young kids looking up to the their team captain and just enjoying a laugh and doing something completely separate and distance from swimming, mm-hmm. but also the team leaders reflecting on uh, what what they've been through. And I think remembering those times when they were in the development squad and what that was like for them and perhaps what they would have liked to know more of. And I think at the end of the day, uh, some of the younger kids were talking to the team captains and team leaders. Um, quite in a quite a relaxed way um, and it really helped boost the community for sure so that's a particular event that comes to mind oh that's awesome and it's that not only the club morale but it's the you know the older kids reflecting on what they might have wanted to you know as you said uh, learn when they were the young age and then them teaching those lessons and passing on their knowledge and those skills onto the younger kids like that is exactly what 
sport can do. Like that is the whole essence, put simply, of sport. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of inspiration and passing down of generations. And yeah, I think, I guess it. everybody's different, but a lot of people do like to have an idol or someone they look up to. And if that person is in your squad or someone in your, in your local community, it can be really special to get to know them more and work together. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I really like that. (laughs) So my last question, it's a very big question. So you can answer it in terms of wherever you want to take it, but where do you see the future of sport? I suppose two things I want to discuss uh, or I think talk about on this, on this question. The first one being uh, swimming is in principle a sport where everybody is striving to find the pinnacle of human excellence or mm-hmm. the, the limit of what a human can achieve and how hard we can push ourselves ourselves as a race, really. It's once you're in the pool, once you're racing, it's just whoever can be the fastest. There's, le- there's very little politics or ulterior motives or games at play. You have your own lane and it's just you versus the clock, which I think is a, a really cool thing. So the future, I suppose, both physically and mentally will continue to change. I think physically we're already seeing it in swimming, but in lots of sports where the introduction of sports scientists, exercise physiologists, and people who are taking enormous amounts of data from people's everyday life, as well as their heart rate variability overnight, how much sleep they had, their heart rate during the session, their times from the session, and looking and looking at all of that data and figuring out they're loading, how they're performing, whether they're too tired, whether they're too fresh, and how to optimize each individual's performance is going to be crucial for maximizing each person's potential, I think, in the future. And then mentally, uh, it's definitely been something that's been growing, I suppose, since my time in the sport. Uh, And I feel perhaps was maybe more overlooked when I first started out as a very junior and is becoming more recognized and encouraged um, now is finding a way to get a mental edge, finding how you can find that space of complete confidence, of relaxation, of control. I know uh, a friend of mine in my squad uh, tried to, it was a specifically designed headset where if you can imagine it has a band that goes over the top of your head like normal headphones do and has these soft silicon triangles and you put gel on your hair and then dig the headset onto your head and it it emits something i can't remember what and i should know more about the science but it emits something and the that part of the brain is it's known as the somatosensory cortex and there's also the the part of the brain can uh responsible for controlling all motor, motor function and so the idea is that this activates that part of the brain without you even have to move and so yeah, technology like that, who knows? But um, I think we will continue to find small little ways to improve and push that limit. And the second thing for swimming in particular, especially in Australia, is the idea of it becoming a professional sport. Mm. There's the International Swim League overseas that started and been running for a few years now in both Europe and America. And Swimming Australia has just recently announced the Australian Swim League which is by no means at the moment a comparison to the AFL, but one day, who knows, maybe, maybe it will be. And I think it's an amazing chance for swimming athletes to try and earn some sort of living, um, mm-hmm. for them to be able to make more of a career out of it and for the sport to progress overall. Because if people aren't having to manage part-time jobs and other commitments and are able to fully commit 
I think would be a fantastic opportunity. And in a country like Australia, where swimming is so popular at the major meets, whether it's Com Games or Olympics, this might this might provide further uh, opportunities for your sort of average spectator to be able to get involved. And I, I think there is potential for sure for people to get involved and for it to really take off. So I'm keen to see what happens in that space. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's really important in terms of turning it into more of a professional sport rather than I guess it's kind of the old school amateur sport model where, you know, you kind of race at those big meets, you know, the Olympics, the Com Games, but it's not something that you really win a lot of money for. So it's not actually, the, you know, the old term definition of a profession because you're not really getting paid to do it. So I guess, yeah, that is going to make it more popular. And maybe I even just think in terms of what the parents tell the kids, um, and maybe they won't go, oh, you have to be an, if you're sporty, you'll be an AFL player because you make hundred grand or more a season. And they'll be like, oh no, if you want to be a swimmer, you be a swimmer. They're not going to, you know, take them out of that sport when they're 12 and put them somewhere else because, you know, maybe they could make money being a swimmer. Not that that's the reason why you should continue a sport, but it's certainly a reason why, you know, you don't have to stop it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think it just promotes the whole profile of the sport because mm-hmm. if, you've, if you've got this domestically, for lack of a better word, I suppose, happening and uh, the spectators attending these domestic clashes with different cities or teams, I think, yeah, I think it would completely revolutionise the sport. And whether it ends up becoming something like tennis where Grand Slams are everything in the Olympics and Commonwealth Games aren't as important, I think mm-hmm. is a very long way away, if ever. But I think, I think it would change things and I think for the better because there's just more opportunity for people to get involved and, uh, yeah, and race and have fun. And I think if you look at it in terms of Olympics, it's just going to, you know, make that high level, the, the people that are always final, like finaling at these Olympic trials, like it's just going to raise it further and further and further, just extra racing opportunities, yeah. I think you're right. There would be what we've seen with the introduction of the ISL, in Europe and America is they've changed the format of your, your standard sort of heats and final session of a swimming competition uh, to make it much more spectator friendly and probably to be honest, less athlete friendly from a cool down, warm up, swim down perspective. But ultimately, if that's going to be what gets the best engagement and take the sport to that next level, then I think the, the sport can adapt and figure out the best way to perform under those circumstances. And yeah, whether if it's, if it's becoming more of a team based sport with more relays, lots of sprinting, um, I know the ISL is in a short course pool, so you can have a very small on deck area with a close grandstand sort of spectator experience. I think it, yeah, there's, there's definitely potential in a country like Australia for it to be a great thing. Oh, you have just brought us around in a full circle because you finished it off with relays and that's the thing that started you loving the sport. So 100%, like that could be more kids who maybe we would lose to team sports going into swimming because it is more team friendly. Yeah, exactly right. I hadn't I hadn't thought of it um, that way, but if they're looking up to this league and they're seeing, seeing swimmers race in relay after relay with teammates and there is there is a team that's clashing another team and there's that sense of camaraderie and community. Yeah, who knows? Who knows what will happen? It's exciting. Before we end, uh, the future of sport, we did a 
a development day with Swimming Victoria. Was that what it was called? A leadership development day in oh, 2014, I'm going to say. Even then, like where I look back at where the sport was seven years ago. Was that seven years ago? It was. I think, I, I think maybe even more. It was a while ago. Yeah, like all of those years ago, I see the progression. So I just think like when we were 18 and 19, I just think of 18 and 19-year-olds who are sitting in now 2021 and see the future that they have. I think it's really exciting to see how far sport has come, but also how far sport has to go and the changes that, you know, can happen in the in such a short time, like it's under 10 years. I think it's, yeah, really, really exciting. And yeah, it's, it's amazing to throw back to memory lane with you, but also uh, to hear your opinion on sport and the lessons that you've learned and uh, yeah, what, what benefits you've had from it. So thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. You're right. I think reflection is a powerful tool and uh, it's always going to be interesting to see where, where sport has come and also where it goes. But thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to chat with you today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. This is a completely independent podcast that has been created to share the journey and lessons of top-level sporting professionals, but also your everyday lover of sport. If you liked this podcast, I'd really appreciate if you could leave a review and share it with someone who you think would also enjoy it. Until next time.